Um, well, pronoun da, as we would say in, in Wales. And, um, and at some point, maybe we'll get Laura to say the best Welsh word in the world. But Wonderful. Never failing party piece. But you didn't well, warn me. I might have forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I'm in a swimming club, and every week we get into the sea or into the pool, and um, and just about time after time, every session starts off with the same ritual. And some of you are in sports clubs, and it, and it starts off the same as well. You start off by saying, "Oh, you know, I've I've got a bit of a dodgy shoulder this week, so I'm not going to be very good." You ever ever do that? Well. Um, We've never done this before. Um, we're doing a, a little bit of a tag team this afternoon, so anything could happen. <laughs> You're just going to have to watch this space and bear with us and, and see what happens. But we are, we are digging in, into God's Word together, and the final session of the day is called The Stronger Church. Loving the church, even in tough times, and even when she is unlovely. Uh, I don't know if that's something that kind of correlates to your experience, but often the church can feel pretty unlovely. But don't tell our church that. <laughs> yeah, Pete, Pete just sowed a seed of doubt in our minds and said, why have they asked you to do this? <laughs> something about, no, our church is lovely. But so often church experience can be far from lovely, can't it? So many of you in this room will have experienced the unloveliness of the church. You'll have felt like people have kicked you when you're down. You'll have got exhausted with other people's problems. You'll have been hit by obstacles, depressed by statistics, discouraged by negativity. Sometimes it will have felt like an uphill battle. And how do you react is the question. Sometimes there's the temptation to run away pray that they would run away. Sometimes you don't know what to do. Sometimes you just want to bury your head in the sand. What do you do when the church is unlovely? Uh, and you've had a lot of experience about that. Laura, you've got some stories. Haven't you? Yeah, we were talking about, uh, we were talking about, well, I think Tom originally said, Matt said to talk about difficult people. And um, so we were talking about what that looked like in the church. Um, and I remembered that years ago when we were in Aberystwyth in church and someone had given uh, a talk about what he called EGRs and he said um, the church is full of EGRs and on a Sunday I write on my hand EGR and sometimes I'm talking to someone and I look at my hand and remind myself this is an EGR. And EGR stood for extra grace required. And um, I took that for years completely the wrong way. So for years, I would look around the church and be like, EGR at 10 o'clock. And sorry if you're sitting at 10 o'clock. And um, I took it for years that, gosh, this person's difficult. This person is a difficult person who needs more grace. And it was an embarrassingly long time, actually probably only a few years ago, that it suddenly hit me in another sermon that if I was talking to someone that I felt was an EGR, it wasn't them that was the problem, it was me who needed more grace, and that it was an opportunity for me to fall upon the Lord and say, I don't have enough grace for this person, I don't have enough love for this person, I need more of you, Jesus, in this conversation, I need more of you in this moment. And, um, and as it suddenly hit me, I was embarrassed that for years I'd been thinking, gosh, you're difficult, instead of realizing that I needed more grace and more love. 
And it hit me in that moment that where was Jesus? He was with the people that I thought were difficult. He was with the people that I thought were the misfits or that I thought were hard, pouring out grace, pouring out love, saying, come and be part of my family. And I was there thinking, oh, gosh, there's an EGR at 10 o'clock. I better go to 12 o'clock. You know, <laughs> and it just made me think, gosh, I've got this all wrong. And actually, God wants me to be in conversation with these people, falling upon him and asking for more love and asking for more grace that I can welcome them into the family rather than thinking in my head, crumbs, you're difficult and <laughs> you are an EGR. Um, and so that, that's just what has struck with me that I still remember that EGR phrase, but no longer to think they are an EGR, but to realize it's me who needs more grace. I'm the one who needs to fall upon Jesus and say, fill me again, Lord, because I haven't got enough grace for this person. So to, to use a line that you may have used or had used against you at some point in the past, it's not you, it's me. And, and that's so often the problem, isn't it? We, we write people off because we underestimate the beauty of the church. And that's really where we're going to go in this last session today. The church has a stunning beauty that has been conveyed onto it by the beauty of Christ. When the church fathers talked about the holiness of God, particularly some of them, Augustine and some, they, they would be talking about the beauty of God and the love of God. Not this idea of some sort of rigid, cold, hard holiness that equated to moral purity. To them, it was a beauty. And that is the way that God sees the church, with a stunning beauty rooted in the beauty of the holiness of Christ. Oh, come, let us worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's the church. That's what Christ has done for the church. The problem is we, we put the problems onto other people and we write them off. Why? Well, well, the reality is this. We've just lived in close proximity to them long enough to see the reality of their sin. I mean, if anyone spends long enough time with you, they see the real you as well. And yet, isn't that what the church is meant to be? A place where the real people come out. Because here's the issue, and I just want to encourage some of you. Don't be discouraged when the church looks ugly. Don't be discouraged when the ugly side of people is on show. Because all it's doing is proving that what's going on in your fellowship is authentic community. When authentic community happens, mess and chaos and ugliness happens. And I love the way that you see that time after time after time with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So I want to read from John chapter 13. It's almost like a character study of, of the ugly side of the church. Let me read to you from John 13. I'm going to read the first four verses to start with. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. 
And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I just I love the way John tells this story. It's totally different from the other three. There's no mention of the bread or the wine. It's all to do with the washing of feet. And there's a stunning beauty going on in it. You, you see this almost juxtaposition of the beauty of Christ and the ugliness of his people. And it's instructive to us in that sense. But, but I love the way he opens it. Jesus, having loved his own, who were in the world, loved them to the end. The cross is in sight. He will love them to the end, but eternity is in sight. He will love his people till the end. Um, And I don't know about you, but we're called to love like Christ, and sometimes that is the hardest thing, isn't it? To love people for more than five minutes can be difficult at times. To love them to the end seems impossible. And I know for us, there are moments where we've kind of thought, we just want to give up on loving this people. There's another church out there somewhere that's easier than ours. Let's go there. It's got to be, hasn't it? You've probably felt that, and yet don't give up. Yes, I think you're being gracious because I think I'm worse at this. So I'm more the one saying, let's move on. Tom's more loving. Um, But before we started in grace, someone gave us a prophecy that, um, a really encouraging prophecy, that when we took over, we'd probably find the church went to sticks and we'd have to rebuild it. Oh, great. (laughs) Amen. So we started started in grace. And uh, I was laughing when you said, Andrew, about letters because... During that first few months, we had a lot of letters, and they were all people leaving. And so we got to the stage where we'd be nervous to come home and open the door because we think, oh, gosh, there's going to be a letter on the door. And, um, and during that time, we'd recently done a lot of work on the house, and Tom had proved that he was quite handy at doing things around the house. And we had, yeah, he's a handyman. And we had, um, we had a little advert through the door, um, recruiting plumbers. And it said, plumbers, we need you. We'll train you. We're looking for plumbers. And I was like, wow, we could do this. Tom could be a plumber. This would be fantastic. So um, I put the, the advert in the hallway and waited and nothing. Tom didn't say anything. So I thought, oh, he hasn't noticed it. So I moved it to the bathroom and put it there. And um, he didn't say anything. So I moved it to the kitchen. And this little advert just did the rounds, really, every room in our house. And eventually I said to him, have you ever thought of plumbing? <laughs> like, have, you, have you noticed this little advert? And, um, and he, he was saying to me, because before we'd even started, uh, our vicar had said, don't do it unless you can do something else. He said, this is a calling, and, and you need to know in those moments, there's nowhere else I could be. God has called me to this, and there's nothing else I can do. And so we talked about it uh, and decided plumbing wasn't the answer <laughs> that God had called us. And then um, talk, Stuart saying earlier about voices speaking in, there's a, a lovely pastor's wife who has always spoken into my life. And I said to her, I'm trying to encourage Tom into plumbing. And he doesn't seem to be getting the hint. You know? And she said, Laura, you've got this all wrong. She said, your job is to encourage him and speak faith to him. And at the moment, he's hearing all these people speaking negative, And it's your job to build up and encourage and speak faith and and speak what God is doing. And so over the years, um, it has become a a learning curve, I suppose, that in those moments when it's hard, my instinct is to run and say, let's go somewhere else, let's go somewhere, let's do plumbing, let's find a new, new avenue. And I've had to learn that 
that the Jesus way is to love and to stay and to say, even in this moment, I'm going to choose to love and stay. And God has called us to be faithful to this people, even when it feels like the people are unfaithful to us. You know, God has called us to remain faithful. So, so we're not plumbing, but, <laughs> but our taps work great, so that's fine. <laughs> We've got good taps. Yeah. Absolutely. And Jesus here just paints this glorious picture of what it looks like to love with a love that loves to the end. It humbles, and it humbles not only to the feet of dirty, broken sinners, but it humbles this man to the cross, to death. And I want you just to see briefly what precipitates this incredible act of love in John's commentary. He says this, now this is just stunning. Look at the kind of love he talks about in verse 2. Judas Iscariot is set to betray him. And it carries on, the same sentence now. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So Jesus is about to betray, Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas. And Jesus is particularly aware at this moment of who he is. That he's from the Father and he's going to the Father. And he's the awesome king into whose hands have been committed all of creation. Those are the two facts John wants you to be aware of when he says this. And Jesus rose from supper, laid his outer garments aside and took a towel. When Jesus bows down before his disciples to wash their feet, John wants you to know he's just been betrayed and he is the mighty king sent from the Father. Isn't that a stunning truth to put those two things together? He gets down on the dirty floor. And you guys, I love speaking at something like this because you don't need all the gaps filled in. But you know that this was a slave's job. This was the least's job. This is the job of the one who didn't matter, the one who was irrelevant. You know that in first century Middle Eastern culture, the minute a guest arrived at a house, they would be welcomed in in this way, and no one has done that for Jesus. They're all just wondering, who's going to wash my feet? Who's going to honor me? Who's going to love me? We read this through 21st century eyes, and, and we tend to think, what a, what a lovely story. Let's have a big foot washing session, which just gets a little bit awkward, doesn't it? If you've ever, ever done that, don't do it. It's It's awkward. But that's not how a first century Jew or Greek or Roman would have read this. At this point, they're reading through the text by verse 4. They're horrified. Why has no one done this to Jesus? We get who he is and no one has washed his feet. And we're wondering through first century eyes, why is no one honoring the one who is above all? Why is no one, no one bowing down to wash the feet of the one who has been given power over all of creation? You see, as you read through John's story of this event, there is a profound ugliness in the room. It cuts through the atmosphere. It smells of pride and arrogance and self-honoring leadership. The ugliness of the church, more often than not, starts in us, not in the congregation and here's what Jesus does. Now, this morning, I, I, this afternoon, I know we haven't got a whole load of time, and, and so I, I don't want to give you a to-do guide this afternoon. That's not really the point. I want to show you what Jesus does. 
and how it should change the way we think about the ugliness of the church. What does Jesus do? Well, notice this, first of all. Jesus reveals the loveliness of those who are difficult to love. So we can talk about the unloveliness of our churches, and we can talk about that in a whole load of ways. The characteristics that Laura's just mentioned in some people that you can probably think of right now who just seem to have a particularly unlovely way about them. For some of you, you wish your church was more perfect. You wish the drummer played in time. I'm not, it was great. <laughs> Nothing said about the um, Kahan here, outstanding. But so often, you, you may be, you're looking at things in your church and you're thinking, I wish that was better. I wish this was more perfect. I wish that was more lovely. And we tend to have this preoccupation with the unloveliness of church. We'll see what Jesus does with the unloveliness of the church. Jesus goes to each and every man in the room to wash his feet. There's something so striking about the picture. You know, John is maybe the youngest disciple. He's the one who, if anyone should be, should be washing feet. Jesus goes to him. In the presence of everyone else looking on, in the face of ugliness and in the atmosphere of awkwardness, it's like Jesus bows down and declares to the rest of the room, I love this man who you look down on. And he moves on. Imagine when he comes to Judas. Judas is there. And in the presence of the rest of the disciples, all looking on, unthinkably, Jesus bows down and declares, I love this man. He does the same with Peter. He does the same with every single one to the very last. And now, this isn't a how-to guide for loving the ugly church. It's a declaration that the ugliness of the church is transformed by the loveliness of Christ. Isn't that true? And he's done that with you and I, hasn't he? Entered into our lives. And in the presence of everyone else, with all looking on, declares, you are beloved. Wholeheartedly. And unreservedly, you are loved. And it's kind of like Jesus is starting a revolution through the leadership of the church in how they see each other. The ones who are looking at Judas and thinking he's a little bit of a greedy guy, he's always talking about money, Jesus shifts their attitudes. To those who think of Peter as the kind of mouthy one, Jesus shifts their attitudes by declaring he is beloved of God. But he also does this. Jesus doesn't just reveal the loveliness of the hard to love. He reveals the stunning beauty of the church. He carries on. He says this. He comes to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am now doing, you do not understand. But afterwards, you will understand obviously talking about the cross. He carries on. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, 
If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Peter's the stubborn one. He's reluctant. He won't wash other people's feet. He certainly doesn't want Jesus to do his feet, but Jesus won't give up on him. Uh, And Jesus says, if if you can't have your feet washed by water, how on earth will you be washed by my blood? And Peter jumps right in and says, well, not just my feet, the whole of me, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, that's Peter. And, and, And in those moments, Peter, you are just as flawed and proud as every other man in the room, but I've come to love you and save you and wash you. I've come, what's he saying, not just to wash your feet, but your whole body, your whole life, to make you holy, beautified. And the one that Isaiah 40 says measures the oceans in the palm of his hands, kneels down and scoops up the water and washes this arrogant leader's hands. Don't you love that? That's what he does for you and me. And at the Last Supper, in prefiguring the washing by blood that will happen at Calvary, Jesus physically draws his disciples to see that they are part of the infinite beauty of the story of God. It's almost like he's telling them that to define one another by their failures is to miss the wonder and the infinitude of the story. To root believers around you in their temporary, momentary failures is to forget what Christ has done. Finally and completely and once and for all. It's to define people by failure rather than by the beauty of Christ. You know, we we so often want people to change before we count them worthy of love, don't we? I'll, I'll commit my whole heart to this person when they sort their act out. When they stop hurting me, when they stop being rebellious, when they stop being difficult, then I love them. When I've got less going on, when my life's quieter, then I will love them wholeheartedly. But Jesus shows a different route where sacrificial love comes first and change comes from it. I I, I love the way Ray Ortland puts it in in his little book, The Gospel. He, He said this, the Son of God crossed the tracks to the wrong side of town, to the dirty one who needed his cleansing to find his bride. Uh, And I just, as you look at your churches now, emerging from COVID, I, I don't know what your church looks like, but I know looking at ours, there's just a desperate need for people who will love like Jesus has loved. Not because he's told them to, but because they themselves have been loved. Those who will cross the tracks and go to the other side. Um, Something I think we've noticed through COVID is that by necessity, little um, friendship pockets have sprung up across the church because it's been easy to keep in touch with, with small groups during the distance of the year. But now that we've got the possibility for some larger gatherings, um, the challenge is to help people not to prioritize those friendship groups over um, the larger gatherings. You know, And I think that's where, where we've been at. And thinking about this was, was sort of... Um, realizing that it's easy to be in your friendship groups, isn't it? It's easy to be with people 
who are like you. It's easy to share Jesus with people who are like you. It's easy to um, pray with people who are like you. But that isn't the church, that the church is called to be a group of people you would never have chosen to be with but for Jesus. You know, it's the church is chosen, it's called to be all different types of people, all different personalities, all different ways of life bound together in unity because of Jesus. And it's easy for me to go and hang out in my friendship group, but but God is calling us to be his bride, to be the beautiful um, picture of all different people um, loving one another. And um, Jesus said, didn't he, by this will everyone know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And um, that's something I think I felt has been missing with not having these larger gatherings is even personally not being with the people that maybe I find more difficult doesn't give me the chance to, to grow in grace and it doesn't give me the chance to love the way that Jesus um, calls us to. And so we need as in our church to say come be church again because that's what God has called us to he's called us to love he's called us to stand together he's called us to be family even in the things we find different and yeah of course you want to prioritize your friendship because it's easy but come and prioritize unity come and prioritize Jesus come and be come and be one together and come back isn't it so that's um that's what we've been thinking about what does it look like as a church as we as we really love one another, it looks like standing with the people that maybe I wouldn't have chosen, yeah. but that Jesus has chosen and Absolutely. made us made us one. Yeah, mm. amazing. Uh, and I just I love the way that Jesus does this. He's not saying, Peter, just go and do what I do. No, he's saying, Peter, I'm going to do a lasting work in your life of making you holy. You will have a part in me, and you will share in me. Now he says, go and do likewise. Uh, and I want to. I want to encourage you. We so often look at, at people around us, and maybe you're thinking of, of difficult people to love in your church right now. We've got people in common probably in this room, people who maybe have discouraged you or upset you or hurt you, people who maybe you've invested in and who've just left you. We've all experienced that at some point. But, but here's the good news. So did Jesus. In one room of 12 people, he had just about every kind of person you can imagine. Betrayers and deniers, heartbreakers, incessant consumers. If you've got those people around you, you're in good company. Because so did he. I want to finish with a kind of last word from Ephesians 5. These incredible words that Paul writes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Why does Jesus do what he does in that upper room with 12 disciples? Why does he do that? What is his love about? Christ gave himself up for her, even at her point of most unloveliness. But she was made lovely by the gaze of Christ. He loved the church, Paul says, for what reason? That he might sanctify her. 
In other words, Jesus doesn't even love the church because he knows what it will be. He loves it that it might be what it will be. That's the whole point. In other words, he pours out his love into the hearts and lives of his people that they might be transformed. And and he carries on. He loved the church that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, the cross is the assurance of the present and future beauty and perfection of the church. In these days that, that we're just beset by difficulties, in these days where maybe you're tempted to run away or pray people away, in these days when ugliness seems to fill the church, when team meetings go sour, when good people leave, this is what Jesus Christ declares about her, his church. She is still stunning. She is still without blemish. She still stands in the light of the cross. And this bride we serve is a beautiful creation of Christ, sharing in his beauty. That's the whole point, isn't it? When Jesus says to Peter, you'll have no share with me unless I wash your feet and your whole soul. What's he saying? Peter, you will share in my holiness. My righteousness, my perfection. See, our church may seem ugly, but it is stunning. Why? Because the beauty of the church is the beauty of Christ. That is the church we love and serve. The bride we serve is the beautiful creation of Christ, sharing in his holy beauty. You know, this is why John can write in his letters that if you have no love for the brother, you have no love for Christ. Because to love Christ is to love his bride. It's his holiness that clothes us. His identity that binds us up and binds us together. So when you or I are tempted to abandon her or count her as lost and to give up, see through the eyes of Christ. In Paul's words, there will be a marriage supper. There will. And the husband will celebrate the beauty and splendor of his bride. He's at the altar even now, waiting for the bride's day. He is at the altar, and the marriage price is paid, and he's waiting for his bride. His eyes fixed lovingly on her right now. He is waiting, besotted with the one that he calls beautiful. Friends, it is our privilege that we get to look on what seems ugly and say, no, she is the beauty of Christ, and there will be none greater or more beautiful than him. This is our calling right now. And here's the encouragement. It's not not our job to get the church to the end of the aisle. It's not. Isn't that a relief? It's not our job to get the people in your congregations to the end of the aisle. Christ has done his work. And he doesn't call you and I to keep the church. That's his job. He simply calls us to love the church and shepherd it as under shepherds. Yeah, I think um, Stuart said earlier about um, sometimes that you love as, as well as you can and still someone leaves over something small and you can feel that really 
why? You know, we've really tried to love. And um, we had a, a, a woman in our church. She was there probably about five years. And within that five years, I think, I think she probably upset pretty much everyone at some point in the church. But it was, it was lovely to see how people loved her through it, you know. And, and, and we did really try to love her through it. And, um, and I thought we had quite a good relationship with her. And, you know, we tried to love her through it. And then uh, probably about two years ago, um, again, I don't know what it really was over, something small, and, and she left. And I really felt that, like that really hit me, that oh, we've really tried to love this person, we've really tried to pour love, and it's still gone wrong. You know, that just sort of leaves you feeling a bit hurt and a bit like, what did we do wrong? Because we, we really tried to pour love in, and it's still, it's still gone wrong. And Romans 12, verse 18 says, doesn't it live at peace as far as you are able. And it just made me check my heart that have you tried to love Laura? Yes, yes I have. That's all I can do and sometimes it will still go wrong. That is the church, isn't it? That we try as best we can and yet there will be times where it goes wrong. There will be times when people leave. There will be times when it doesn't pan out the way that we've hoped. Um, but that's a moment for me to check my heart and say is it loving? Are you are you loving? Are you at peace? Are you being who God has called you to be? And that's that's all I'm responsible for at the end of the day is my own heart and 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 I have to leave the rest to God. You know, so that's that's a situation that I often still think about. Lord, you know, what what went wrong there? But but it's just those moments where I have to check my heart. Am I loving? Am I being full of peace? Am I forgiving? Am I letting it go? Because that's all that's all that I can do. Yeah, amen. I think we're going to sing a song. Is that right? But well, maybe. Yeah, I was just so James four verse six. I start, started by saying about extra grace required, and um, part of what that that said to me was um, that when I haven't got the grace, it's often because I'm proud. <laughs> it's my pride thinking that person is is difficult. And James four verse six says, "But he gives more grace." And I just love that, that in those moments, he gives more grace. And it goes on to say, uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's a good moment, isn't it, for us just to remember as we come humbly before God and say, I just need more grace, yeah. that God's word promises us. He gives and gives and gives again. That's our God, isn't it? He gives yeah. more grace, and there's no end to his grace. There's no limit to his grace. There's no person beyond his grace. There's no situation that's too difficult for his grace. He gives and gives and gives again. So amen Brilliant. to his grace. Isn't that good? We've all got people who, who you probably consider in your church have ulterior motives, right? You've, you've got people who you think, I'm not sure they get us as a church. I'm not sure they're all in. I'm not sure they're one of us. You ever get that? But what, what I love is this. Jesus calls us to love them unreservedly. Carefully, sure. Knowingly, but unreservedly. I love that G Judas is in the mix here. And Jesus knows exactly what's in his heart. He knows exactly what's to come in the next few days. But is he reserved? Not a bit. Not one bit. The language is so striking. Peter will have a share in Christ. Judas will not. Peter will be washed clean. Judas will not. But Jesus loves him all the same. And that is our calling. So we stand together because I would imagine... 
I'd imagine that for a lot of us, you're probably already thinking, yes, but there are people who, you don't know who's in my church. But the groom is stood at the altar, and he's waiting for his bride, and his bride is clothed in the holy righteousness of the Son, arrayed in beauty, matchless. Let's just take a moment, shall we, and and maybe just ask for the Spirit to come The beauty of the bride is the beauty of Christ. It's not a separate thing. He clothes her. As you look at your church and you consider the difficulties that you face, the obstacles and the discouragements, your own struggles, here is what Christ says about his church. She is beautiful without blemish. I love her. So lift your gaze to the king. Allow him to love you. See how loved you are and know how loved your church is. Oh, there is nothing he has not done for her. No obstacle he hasn't knocked down for her. He loves her. Our Father, just in in these moments together, We cry out, Spirit of God, let us see the church as she truly is. Not through our momentary glimpse of her in all of her failure and flaws. Let her see the church that has been washed by the blood of Christ and robed in his righteousness, arrayed in his beautiful holiness. Let us see the bride that is beloved by you through all eternity. And Lord, give us grace to love her as you love her. Lord, we just repent this afternoon knowing that so often the failure is ours. In our churches, so often it's us who's failed to love, not the fault of those around us. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us that so often we're more like Peter, stubbornly refusing to wash feet and be washed. Lord, forgive us and let us see anew your love for your church. Open our eyes to her beauty. To your beauty. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.